We continue our study of the Gospel of John this morning, coming now to the, the last section of John chapter 3. We've, uh, we're, we're coming out of this conversation between John and, and Nicodemus, I mean Jesus and Nicodemus, perhaps history's most thoroughly covered private conversation. Uh, and I am grateful for brothers Chad and Mark and the job they've done teaching us from God's word. We uh, come now to what is in the gospel of John, sort of the last significant appearance of John the, the Baptist or John the Witness, Brother Kerry, uh, since, you know, but, but I have a passage where Jesus does call him John the Baptist, so I'm allowed to do it every now and then. Um, love you, man. All right. So, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. This, this uh, moment in the ministry of, of John the Witness, John the Baptist, uh, I have entitled this section Wisdom from the Best Man. And uh, I, I have a couple of reasons I'll show you in the passage why I refer to John here as the best man. But let me go ahead and lead with a big idea. <clears throat> There's a central thought that emerges very clearly from this text, and it's, and it's something like this. And this is in your uh, outline, if you've got it either digitally or printed. Our big idea this morning, the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, involves a diminished view of myself as I embrace an exalted view of Jesus. Um, we live, you and I, in a time and place where, where self-exaltation is absolutely rampant as the order of the day. I think, I think the tendency to make a big deal out of oneself is as old as the fall. I think it's, it's baked into fallen humanity that we want to make ourselves, well, a, a big deal. And if you say, well, I don't have that problem. I'm not interested in making myself a big deal at all. <clears throat> Go with me in your mind back to the last time you did not get your way on something that mattered greatly to you. It mattered a lot to you and it didn't go your way. And tell me again that you don't want to be a big deal. Uh, right? So John the Baptist has some insight for us because see, the life of the believer is a life that, that, that is and certainly ought to be focused not on self-promotion, self-advancement, self-exaltation, but instead on giving glory to Jesus. And uh, we'll see that unfold, I think, in this passage. I'm not gonna read the passage all the way through. We'll read it as we go. Roman numeral one, there's a couple of verses here at the very beginning that are just kind of given to context. Verses 22 through 24. After this, and this there is the events of, of chapter two and chapter three, going all the way back to the wedding at Cana and all the way through the, 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 the purging of the temple, through now to this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. That is, they left Jerusalem and remained there, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. 
for John had not yet been put in prison. There are, there are three at least pieces of context that emerge in those three verses, just this glimpse in the context that we get. The first is geographical. Geographical. The events of, of chapter two had begun up in the north in Cana of Galilee where Jesus did the miracle at the wedding of water into wine. And then the other events, the, the, the cleansing of the temple for the first time, remember he did it again later in his ministry, but this inaugural sort of cleansing or purging of the temple, this conversation with Nicodemus, all of these events have been in and around Jerusalem. Now Jesus heads out into the, the Judean countryside and we don't know just where. There are um, reasons to think probably down to the Jordan River. Wherever he headed, there was enough water to baptize people. And that means enough water for people to be immersed. There are some seasonal tributaries of the Jordan that flow down out of the mountains that Jesus could have gone to one of them if the time of the year was right, but most likely down toward the Jordan. The reference to Ainan at Salim is not a reference we have any external information about. So we don't know where John the Baptist was specifically, but we know that wherever he was, he also was in a setting close enough that he knew, he and his followers knew what Jesus and his followers were up to. Um, so someplace in that same wilderness where there was water to baptize. That's geography. Beyond that, we don't know, we don't need to know. Letter B, historically. This, um, this reference in verse 24, John had not yet been put in prison. If you look at the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you'll see that they basically inaugurate in their telling of the story of Jesus's ministry, they begin with Jesus's baptism and then his wilderness temptations by Satan and then the imprisonment of John. That's sort of the early sequence in all the other Gospels. The other Gospels don't tell us much about the period here early in Jesus' ministry that John has been telling us about. So historically, we've got this little window we've been in between Jesus' inaugurating his ministry by the purging of the temple publicly, his conversation with the Gideon, and here now. It's a unique season of Jesus's ministry that's only really talked about by John the Apostle in his gospel. Then personal. This is a, a, there's a moment here of personal context. John had not yet been put in prison. Remember, we've, we've told you that this, this gospel of John was written quite late in the first century. By the time John writes this, John the Baptist is long since dead. Uh, the the account of his imprisonment and death under Herod is told in more detail in the other Gospels. But um, we know, as John the Apostle knew, that John the Baptist's public ministry was coming toward its end game. That's, that's an important moment, I think, of, of, of realization in a, in, a, in a person's life. Um, there, there, there comes an end game. It's closer for some of us than it is for others. Um, unless I am, for me, unless I am alive and teaching God's word on earth at the age of 118, I have to reckon with the fact I'm in the back half. 
I'm in, I'm in the half where it's not getting started, it's finishing well. And not, I pray, not tomorrow. But who knows, I could get taken out by a meteorite this afternoon, by the way, so could you. And, and in the historical context, in the biographical context of John, John's concern, John the Baptist's concern now is making certain, even in the end game, that he's bringing glory to Jesus. Remember all his life. He's the, he's the other pregnancy in the Christmas stories, right? His mom, Elizabeth, and her miraculous pregnancy with John, not, not a, a virgin pregnancy like cousin Mary, but a pregnancy way too late in life to be non-miraculous. And all his life, this cousin of Jesus, John the, John the Baptist, John the Witness, has known that his life's work is to bring glory to Jesus. It's what he's been all about. And soon he will go to prison. Soon after that he will die and finish that work. So that's the moment into which we come. Roman numeral two, there's a conversation. There's a conversation. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We don't know the identity of this Jew and we don't have that particular conversation. But in the course of that conversation, something else came up. And they came to John, verse 26, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John, we have been faithful to you. We're attached to your ministry and leadership. We, we saw the moment where you referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now, some gratitude, he has up and launched a copycat ministry and he's Picking off people. He's getting more prominent. You're getting less prominent. Letter A. I've labeled Roman numeral two this conversation some bad news about me. Now it's only bad news about you to the degree you want to keep yourself at center stage. To the degree you want to be some big prominent deal because we see in letter A on this issue of significance Jesus at this moment and his disciples are conducting a baptismal ministry by the way Jesus himself is not baptizing people if you fast forward to chapter 4 verse 2 you'll see that it's the disciples that are actually doing the baptizing for whatever reason our Lord did not actually do the baptizing at any rate, John, you've been at this for a while and it looks like he's gaining momentum in terms of his fame, his impact, his popularity. You, you may not be a big deal for much longer. By the way, Neither may you. You may have a measure of fame, a measure of influence, a measure of wealth, a measure of any number of things. You may have some 
real live successes under your belt, and that's okay, provided everything you've got is focused on making Jesus a bigger deal, pointing out Jesus, highlighting Jesus, glorifying Jesus, exalting Jesus, lifting high the the reputation and character and good news of Jesus, significance. Letter B, sufficiency. Sufficiency. John quotes our, our states an absolute truth in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Nothing. I can't be worried about what a big deal I am if I realize I am nothing apart from my Lord. I have nothing apart from my Lord. My life is not even my own. I was not my own idea. It's all Jesus. I, ab- I absolutely love being around mid to late adolescent people. Uh, we're in the summer now, and I have, I have said goodbye to one of my 12th grade Bible classes. They walked across the stage and out into grad, you know, post-high school graduation life a couple of weeks back. And I haven't met my new 12th graders yet, and I look forward to meeting them at um, SFCA seniors have to get through me to graduate. And hopefully it's not too horrific an experience, but I, I certainly very much enjoy it. But I love... I love being around mid to late adolescence. One of the things that's going on in the development of a mid to late adolescent is the healthy impulse to want to act independently. That's not a bad thing. They're they're at the stage in life where, where they are being prepared by the hand of their creator to one day actually act pretty independently. They're on course for adulthood. And that's not a bad thing. Um, by, by the way, this is free, parents. Uh, let, me, let me give you one definition of adulthood that might be helpful to you as you deal with your own mid to late adolescent and their impulses toward adulthood. Um, oh my, especially if they throw some birthday at you. Well, I'm 16 years old now, so I'm... Blah, blah, blah. Definition of adulthood, here you go. One can claim to be adult when the power bill has your name on it. <laughs> when the power bill comes to you in your name, congratulations, you're an adult. Until it does, when you're running all your gadgets off juice that somebody else is paying for, don't you give me this I'm an adult because I'm 16 years old stuff. That was free. If you're a parent, you've probably had moments where you're not quite ready for self-sufficient function. Adolescent has flashed something at you in a moment of frustration. I don't need you. I can do this on my own. Or some words to that effect. And you as the parent who is still carrying that young'un on your back through life might be a little bit offended, might be taken aback by their assertion that they can operate independently of you at that stage in their life. Remember this verse in those moments and think about your relationship to your heavenly father. 
because you cannot and do not operate independently of him. Every, he talk about carrying you on his back. Again, look at what the verse says. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven, our sufficiency. Let her see my submission. My submission. I'm not in charge here. Look at verse 28. You yourselves, now John speaking to his followers, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He is Lord, I am not. He is Lord, I'm just one who's been sent. He is Lord, I am not. Some of you are enjoying my saying that a little too much. So let me try this. Turn to someone sitting near you and say to them, he is Lord, I am not. I'll wait. Some of y'all are choking on that assertion that you're not in charge. John says, look, my whole life has been that I am sent on his behalf. Of course he's the big deal. I'm not so much. I'm submitted to that. I understand my place, my role, and I am blessed by that, which leads to, letter D, my satisfaction. My satisfaction. Remember, my title is Wisdom from the best man. Here's one of the places I've, I've drawn from to build that title. My satisfaction. John says, my joy is the joy of the best man at a wedding. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that is the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The, the, the best man at the wedding really isn't that big a deal. The joy of the best man is to watch as the groom claims his bride. The, the parties to the wedding are the bride and groom. The best man is a very peripheral role. But oh, the joy that is mine to be here at the inauguration of the groom stepping forward to claim his bride as Jesus calls to himself a people. I'm not a big deal in that. I'm just the best man. And my deep joy, my deep satisfaction comes from understanding the role I have been given does yours? Does yours? Well, nothing, nothing wrong with desiring to, to develop and utilize your spiritual gifts fully. Nothing wrong with aspiring to achieve well. Quite a lot wrong with having ambition to advance without respect to the glory of God. 
It's very, very wrong to have ambition to advance apart from concern for the glory of God. In fact, the very fall of Satan, the very origin of all, all that is wrong and evil in the universe is tied to his ambition to advance without respect to the glory of God. It's the biggest problem historically in the cosmos. It's the biggest problem there ever was. Don't you share it. Don't you share it. John says, my satisfaction is not found when I'm a big deal. My satisfaction is found as I observe the bridegroom calling his bride to himself. I'm the best man. And then letter E. He's also, up till his moment in time, he's the best man. A bit of a play on words coming here. Uh, my stature, letter E. I love, love, love verse 30. John speaking again of Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. He's got to come to be a bigger deal. Everything has got to be about his glory, his visibility, his prominence, his exaltation, his worship, his glory. And in the course of doing that, I've got to get small and out of the way. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's a true statement made by any Christian. It's a remarkable statement if one can say it and truly understand it and mean it. In John's case, it is spectacularly remarkable because of who John was compared to, honestly, the rest of humanity up to that date. Brother Russell, what do you mean? Come with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 Verse 11 has two sentences. I'm just going to read the first sentence. This is Jesus' assessment of John the Baptist. Jesus is a, by the way, Jesus is right. We can agree on that, right? Jesus hasn't got this wrong. So Jesus' assessment of John the Baptist is the accurate assessment of John the Baptist. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus called him, if you'll pardon my pun, the best man. The best man that had ever lived up to that point, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, in considering his own stature, said, I've got to be smaller that Jesus would be bigger. And you say, well, how do you make Jesus bigger? Well, he's, he obviously he's using some figurative language. It's like this, and I've used this illustration before. If you go out this afternoon, assuming there's a clear sky this afternoon, I haven't looked outside since pretty early this morning, but assuming a clear sky and the, the sun is visible in the sky, you can, take a, you can take a quarter and you can hide the sun with it. If you close one eye and put that other quarter right up next to your eyeball, you can hide the sun behind a quarter. 
by positioning that quarter in such a way that it gets all the focus, it gets all the prominence, that sun, the sun can be hidden by that quarter. But get the quarter out of the way and it becomes evident that the sun is the much bigger deal. That's what John the Baptist is saying here. I, I must not position my life such that anybody thinks I'm a bigger deal than Jesus. I've got to get small. I've got to get out of the way. I've got to guard myself against any attention I would get that is not attention focused on the glory of the living God, Jesus Christ, my stature. So must you and I. And similar thought, if we, if we, if we look past John the Baptist and we look past the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and begin to get into sort of the, the, the era of the, the later New Testament, the time as Jesus has now died on the cross and, and been resurrected from the grave, gone on to heaven, sent us out into the world, that, that modern Christian era, so to speak, many of us would take the position, and I think it's pretty defensible, that, that the apostle Paul is, is perhaps the greatest Christian to have ever lived. And here's what Paul said of himself. This is from Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul, speaking of himself, said, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It sounds very like, at least terribly consistent with, he must increase. I must decrease. Two unquestionably great men, John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul, agreeing that it's not my life that ought to matter to me. It's Jesus that ought to matter. And my, my life need be about him. Roman number three, there are some concepts. The good news of Jesus. Now, Different translations either end the quote from John the Baptist at the end of verse 30 or don't. It, it, it's not terribly significant, but I believe John the Baptist continues speaking. There aren't any quotation marks in the original, so it's translator's choice. And this next paragraph either comes from John the Apostle as an editorial or it's John the Baptist continuing to speak. I believe it's John the Baptist continuing to speak. I could very easily be wrong, but... Not, not terribly material, just a, a thing to notice in your translation. First, if, if, if I'm gonna get small so Jesus can be big, the question becomes, what's the big deal about Jesus? Why is he worth all that? Well, here we see at least four reasons. Number one, his authority. He who comes from above is above all. That word from above there, by the way, is the same word that Brother Chad spoke of so much two weeks ago. It can mean either again or from above. Some of Nicodemus's confusion might have been around a failure to grasp that significance. Here it clearly means from above. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. There's nothing necessarily wrong with speaking in an earthly way. Um, if, if I have to replace a light switch, I'm glad somebody taught me what's 
screws to take loose, the importance of tripping the breaker, how to reconnect the thing without lighting myself up. And I didn't find that in scripture. But it also is not gonna help me live forever. The, 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 the how to change a light switch is earthly speech. It's not necessarily evil, but it is eternally valueless. Handy in the short term, not terribly useful in the long term. Jesus, on the other hand, has the words of eternal life. His authority is that who comes from above. Not only his authority, but also his veracity. His veracity. Now that word, veracity, means trustworthiness or truthfulness. So you might say to me, hey, Russell, why didn't you use truthfulness or trustworthiness for your letter B? Simple, it doesn't end in I-T-Y. And that was the groove I was in. So veracity, his trustworthiness, his truthfulness. You, you can trust what Jesus says. Look at what the word of God says in verses 32 and 33. He bears witness, that is Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He's a firsthand witness, yet no one receives his testimony. That's the rule. Most people never have believed in Jesus. That's the rule, but here's the exception. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. His veracity. Let her see his deity. His deity. There's a tremendous amount of, of the theology of the Trinity in the Gospel of John. Here, woven in these two verses, is a picture of, of the operation of God, who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, while at the same time, he is but one God. We affirm that without thoroughly, thoroughly understanding it, though we know that God has spoken of it. He speaks of it here. For he whom God, that is God the Father, has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives God the Spirit without measure. God the Father loves God the Son and has given all things into his hand. A quick takeaway from that is Jesus Christ is God. The Gospel of John has been asserting that from the beginning. It will assert it till the very end. His authority, his veracity, his deity. Of course, he's a big deal while I'm a small one. And finally, praise God, his intentionality. Luke 19.10 says it like this, the Son of Man, Jesus, has come to seek and save the lost. Our verse at hand here, verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There are hundreds of verses in the New Testament about which I could say, if this is the only verse that addresses the issue of eternal security, this one verse is enough. Notice the verse does not say, whoever believes in Jesus may one day come to have eternal life. He has it. Those who believe in Jesus have eternal life. When does eternal life expire? Not meant to be a hard question. It never does. Does the person who believes in Jesus look forward to eternal life or have it now based on this verse? We've got it now. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. 
I'll say more about this when I record the Beyond the Notes podcast this week, but notice that, that the type of belief that saves is belief that results in obedience. He doesn't say those who believe have life, those who fail to believe don't. He says those who believe have life and those who don't obey don't. So he's taking belief and obedience and demonstrating that they are one and the same if that belief is saving belief. You cannot believe in Jesus in the same way that I believe Sacramento is the capital of California. If that's where you stop, that Jesus is a fact set that you have checked off, that is not saving belief. Saving belief transforms you. Three times the New Testament speaks of obedience to the gospel. You can find those as easily as I found them. Those who do not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You know why he says the wrath of God remains? This is an important point of theology. The wrath of God remains. Not, Not the wrath of God comes on him, but it remains. See, you and I are the appropriate objects of the wrath of God. All we have to do to realize that, to come to the full experience of that wrath, is nothing. The wrath of God, in in terms of its future execution, does come. But here, for those who don't believe, it remains. It's already the default setting. See, you and I were born into a world that's at war with God. And we became the just and appropriate recipients of God's wrath before we ever got around to personally sinning because of great granddad Adam and great grandmom Eve declaring war on God in the Garden of Eden. And you and I are by birth and by nature children of wrath before we even get around to sinning ourselves. And oh, how we get around to sinning ourselves. And that wrath of God remains on unbelievers because it's been there all along and only faith in Jesus makes it otherwise. Jesus Christ went to the cross to absorb that wrath that was due to me and you. And if we will turn from our sin and trust him by faith, that is, if we will believe, not in a sterile fact, but in a Lord to whom we align our lives, if we will believe, we have eternal life. If we don't, we will remain in that state that is ours by right, the state of wrath.